Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. If there's a band that defies labels, it's Snarky Puppy. Michael League founded the band almost 20 years ago when he couldn't get into any of the music programs at his college. Instead, he created a band that was rooted in jazz but opened itself to all kinds of musicians. The result is Snarky Puppy winning five Grammy Awards. They won one last year for Best Contemporary Instrumental Album. You can hear all kinds of different musical influences there. The band cut a record with David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and its members have played with everyone from Snoop Dogg and Justin Timberlake to Erica Badu. Michael also co-founded the annual Ground Up Music Festival. It's happening this weekend at the Miami Beach Bandshell. It includes a pair of legendary Cuban bands playing together for the first time, and they feature music from an album that Michael helped produce. To talk to us about his love of music that's hard to classify is Michael League. Michael, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Elisa dropping off some, uh, what do you got there? Thank you, Elisa. You got got water? (laughs) Our producer, Elisa Baena. (laughs) Quick with the water. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, I was telling you just before um, we were getting started, like we were just vibing to your music all morning. Like we just put it on there and it's like... Uh, and, and it's funny, you said you did not hate it. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't find it hateable. I find it, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're being modest, but, but like there's, there's so many musical influences going on there sure. um, that I find really interesting because it sounds like you also didn't grow up with like within a musical category yourself, right? Well, I mean, I grew up mostly in suburban Northern Virginia so yeah, I mean, I guess the, the where I grew up, the musical culture was like Nirvana and Spin Doctors and Pearl Jam and like that kind of stuff, you right, know. Right. Um, and I was way into that, but I also had an older brother. Um, at that time, I mean, he's still my older brother. <laughs> he didn't stop being my older brother, <laughs> right, but he just quit. Um, he quit being my brother. Yeah, who wouldn't? Um, <laughs> he, uh, you know, at the time, my 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 older brother, who's five years older than me was really digging into like our roots ancestrally, which are largely Irish and Greek. And, um, Oh, he was personally curious. Like, yeah. Where do our people come from here? Totally. And, and so he got really into playing Irish and Greek traditional music, you know? So I would come home, you know, as like a middle schooler and there'd be like an Irish session in my living room and like 30 empty Guinness cans, you know? <laughs> and it only got better from there. That's right. Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. Um, so your house was really interesting. You're like, you're, you're, yeah. you, you were all a musical family? Or? No, not really. I mean, my mom majored in flute at Florida State, but um, she's from Tarpon Springs. Okay. Florida Greek, girl? Greek town, yeah, yeah. And um, she majored in music, and she taught some flute lessons, but she did childcare, you know? She, it was, it, we were not... When I think of like a musical family, like I have friends who both parents are professional musicians. Like there's music all the time in the house. Like my family wasn't like that. Everybody in the house loved music. Right. 
but my brother was the one who brought it into the home. Musician and scholar, kind of like, yeah. right? Like, is that to that level? Yeah, and now he's an ethnomusicologist at FSU. All right. Actually. So what is he's... an ethnomusicologist? I, I think I can break down that word with its Latin roots, but, but yeah. give it to us in the short form. I guess the shortest form that I could give you is like an anthropologist with respect to music. Beautiful. Like a person who studies why music is the way that it is in different parts of the world. Um so yeah, my brother was the one that kind of brought it into the home. So that's where like I saw a lot of people playing like up close at a very high level and you know there were instruments laying around because my brother plays dozens of instruments. So like you know there would be like an oud laying in the living room or there would be like a Greek lauto or like a a concertina which is like a little accordion, you know, or like and Whatever. like and like random instruments, you're not like oh there right. was a there was a drum kit and a and a right. guitar. There right. was there was uh, you know these very specific cultural instruments, right? Sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like instruments that exist um, within yeah folkloric music forms not native to the U.S. Right, you know. But also, my brother was a heavy metal drummer and a jazz drummer too. So <laughs> there were I would definitely come home and hear yeah you know like Primus covers in the basement or something. Right, know? where our, our VP of radio Peter J will uh, will will love that he's not in the studio, but I'm sure he's listening. But he's a he's a huge jazz drummer. So oh cool yeah so he he gets it. He gets yeah it. yeah and so and that's how I got into jazz was through my brother because he was. A jazz drummer as well. And, and did, so. did you have an interest in that? Or was it just like uh, this this curious surrounding that you were in? I was more like coffee house, acoustic guitar, singer-songwriter-y. Pick up girls, play, play, <laughs> play three chords, right? Oh, my God. I wish. No. <laughs> um, no, it was... Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, at that time when I was like in early high school, I picked up the acoustic guitar and my brother was playing all this other, you know, really interesting stuff. And I was just really like just learning like James Taylor songs and which are also uh, I mean amazing songs you know yeah no no um, you had you had a you had an, an unofficial musical education yeah for sure it was beautiful um but then my brother like I think for my birthday gave me like a jazz guitar lesson with a friend of his who was a teacher and I took the lesson and I came back home and I was like all right that's it I am totally changing direction. Like this just it blew my mind. Like wow. the world of jazz harmony, I think jazz chords, how much color there is. You were like how old? Like 15. Okay. So 15 really then then got serious about music like yeah. as a as a teenager. Mid-teenager. Yeah, I was like more into sports and theater and 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 then like as soon as music came, it just like was like a wrecking ball it just came in and just destroyed all interests around me oh wow <laughs> and then it I really just, it really you yeah. found your you found your thing what what sports were you playing um i played tennis a lot then um which i just got back into like a year and a half ago and now it's the only thing that i think about all day and all night that's not good for the band is that good it's for the band good for the band <laughs> we might it might be over we might be done <laughs> <laughs> now we have like you, you'll be on the senior tour now. <laughs> what are you saying? Man? Listen, bro, we got to come to terms with where we are. You don't uh, think I can take on Djokovic? I, I mean, maybe at this point, maybe when his back's hurt, <laughs> he's better than ever. Anyway, we're not going to. We didn't come here to talk about tennis. No, okay. Um, but like I, I said, but I played. Uh, yeah, I played tennis. I played basketball. I played baseball. I played street hockey. I played whatever when I was a kid. I was just always out in in the yard or in the street or whatever playing and 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 then like once music arrived i don't think i exercised for like 20 years you wow know? wow <laughs> you know, just steamrolled well, me and talk to me about that because you're you're 
your music and it's like I was like what is what does this fit into is this like jam band and then I heard like this I read this thing it was really thoughtful it was like jam band but the part the band isn't partying the band is I mean the mm. the audience isn't partying the audience is actively listening I don't think that was something oh, that they wrote in the time I think I read that in the times and and that made a lot of sense for the kind of music you know which is very like it feels like jazz it feels like jazz is the closest thing there yeah I would say that um there are a couple of genres or styles of music mm-hmm. um in which every single member of the band is like extremely fluent you know i would say jazz is one of those mm. also like funk and soul and pop hip hop you know um which are all effectively one genre of music which is black american music right <laughs> you know they're sub sub genres of black american music and they are all distinct forms of black american music so uh, but there are many 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 forms of black american music and not everyone in the band is very well versed in all of those you know okay so how did the kid that grew up listening to irish music in northern virginia (laughs) who is very white very clearly white yes uh fall into the category of of just falling in love with black american music well i mean it's interesting because if you go into a shopping mall in Indonesia, you don't hear like, I don't know, shakuhachi, or you don't hear like Turkish arabesque, or you don't hear, yeah, Irish reels. I mean, you hear black American music, hmm. you know, um, I think for a couple reasons, one being that whatever horrific combination of factors led to that music's creation speaking you know historically about slavery and the diaspora and all of that stuff which is very 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 heavy and you know which i won't even begin to go into because of 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 how deep of a subject that is um the the artistic result of that you know um i guess with respect to jazz kind of starting in new orleans in congo square um over a century ago you know, I I think that that music is very special. I think it's undeniably special. Mm. I think even if you remove the massive American marketing machine from the equation, which is, in my opinion, the second reason why you hear Kanye West or Justin Timberlake or Marvin Gaye in a shopping mall in Indonesia. Right. The marketing is the biggest, you know, is, is one of the biggest reasons. I would say it's probably number two. But number one, I would say, is just objectively how rich the music is right right that's um, a, like a, like a lot you know a lot of ways like the cuisine you know totally, very rich yeah. and, and touches a lot of a lot of places yeah S- so you're so you get into this place where you then are, become fascinated with this music what in college and and well i mean yeah i mean I, like, what i was trying to say with the mall hmm. thing is that like it doesn't matter what color you are if you grow up in the united states you listen to black music right you have to try very hard to not listen to black music. In right. The United turn on States. the radio. Turn it's on every, any, any radio, everywhere, stream, whatever it is. TV, film, yeah. whatever. It's everywhere because it's the dominant musical art form in in this country. Well, like you said, you know? if something is so rich, there's some there's so much to to tap into, and there's so it's such a wide spectrum that it covers that that it touches a lot of different musical art forms. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so, I grew up with it. Also, you know, I mean, my dad. You know, I remember his vinyls of like James Brown's Sex Machine and Stevie Wonder and stuff, you know, and and that was also the music that I grew up with. So I was always interested in it. And then 
just by chance, I, I played in a gospel band at First Baptist Vienna in Vienna, Virginia, near the end of my high school. Actually, maybe like the beginning, middle of high school when I was like, yeah, like 15, 16. Um, and so that like opened up huge doors to like that. You know, I remember sitting in a car with like four of my friends and they, they like show me D'Angelo, Kirk Franklin, you know, gospel and, you know, contemporary gospel and in that moment and contemporary R&B and, and that kind of, you know, definitely expanded my, my taste. And then I went to school for jazz at the university of North Texas, um, which obviously jazz is one of the, you know, the most prominent black American art forms. And then just by chance, again, I ended up kind of right place, right time, getting hired to play at an incredible church in Texas that like just had the best band I'd ever played in in my life, which the band really was Roy Hargrove's RH Factor without Roy, you know, Roy being one of the most influential jazz trumpet players of all time, also from Texas. And so then I just basically like shifted from going like jazz school, mostly white kids to then like in three weeks, then just like all of my gigs were in black churches or, or hip hop or R&B clubs. And it stayed that way for like three or four years. Well, clearly something that you did uh, and going into that space with like this mind of like wanting to absorb clearly touched a lot of nerve because you instantly, it sounds like you instantly started to draw musicians to their, their, mm. their different tastes together. Um, our guest today is Michael League. He's the band leader of Snarky Puppy and the co-founder of the Ground Up Music Festival. The festival's happening this weekend at the Miami Beach Band Show. So, I'm, I, like, because the band, the, and folks, you know, the band has cycled through something like 40 musicians, as sure. I was reading. And, and I think that the original band was like, was like 10 musicians. Yeah. So we're already talking the richness of sound, already mm. balancing this idea of, of uh, orchestrating uh, yeah. 10 musicians and, and bringing in their sound. Talk to me about that process. Like, how, how did you been, like, something must have immediately touched people's nerves, and then how do you begin to stitch those sounds together? Yeah, um, I mean, when I started the band, I was really just trying to create a group that epitomized my favorite elements of different kinds of music. Hmm. So it was kind of like a melting pot concept already, rather than being like, you know, a straight-ahead rock band or, or like a straight-ahead jazz band or whatever. Um, and so I just found the players that I thought at the University of North Texas where I was studying at the time. I just tried to find people who I thought would be up for that. Basically trying to find people who weren't jazz snobs. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Like folks who were like willing to have fun with, with the music, explore the music in a way that, that kind of broke the mold a little bit. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And And then... When I said, as I told you, I, I suddenly found myself like smack in the middle of this incredibly rich black American music scene in Dallas where I was just playing in churches and kind of R&B and hip hop clubs. Um, and through that scene, you know, I met all of the people in Erica Badu's band and Roy Hargrove's band and Marcus Miller's band and Kirk Franklin's band. And 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 then that just became kind of also my scene and, and by default the band's scene, you know. Um, and, and then what happened is like a lot of those musicians started asking me like, can I play in your band? <laughs> okay. So, so step Which, out of yourself for a second. Yeah. What was, what were you doing or what were you encouraging? What was the group that you originally found with encouraging that had people that were playing with, you know, Snoop Dogg, right. you know, and, um, Kendrick Lamar, right? Like sure. one of your, your drummer, uh, yeah, played with fun. Kendrick Lamar, yeah. um, to, to say, I want to join this band. I want to do something creatively with you guys. 
Well, I think that um, every gig that you have as an artist allows you to show a certain side of of who you are. But there, you know, as as artists, like 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 any human being, like there's we're like we're universes we're galaxies there's a lot of planets inside of each of us and we contain multitudes exactly right exactly that's the much much more eloquent way of saying what i was trying to say every poet's a thief man that's right (laughs) and um and uh someone may love playing you know gin and juice with snoop dogg you know four nights a week or whatever and and playing the heck out of it um but maybe that person is also capable of you know playing jazz at a really high level or or they 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 you know are capable of playing in a way that's a lot more free and less um like uh, structured right um and that's kind of what you encourage you're like go like play your gig and then something i've noticed about some of your your gigs is that everybody gets solo you know like oh sure at yeah. some point everybody gets a solo you know mm. <laughs> uh and i thought that that was really cool definitely yeah, I mean that's a very rock and roll thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I try to create a playground above all on stage. You know, mm. I want everybody to feel free. I want them to feel loose and relaxed, and and I don't want them to feel pressure. And I want them to feel that they can really go wherever they want to go musically, and that the band will will support that. You know, like what's the rule in like improv theater is is like yes and, right? You never reject an idea that someone has pr- proposed. You you always accept it and then you elaborate on it, right? right. Like that's like the rule and whatever in in, in improvisational theater. We we should have, we should have incorporate that rule into everything, pretty much. Yes, and let's hear let's hear the rest of that. Absolutely, yeah. and and the idea that like you're acknowledging and accepting what has been played or said, and then you're elaborating and you're taking it farther on down the road. And then if everyone continues to yes and alongside you, then they take it farther down the road. And then you end up in a very unexpected and kind of beautiful place. That's, to me, the beauty of improvisation. Um, And so Snarky Puppy definitely revels in that. I mean, we love, love, love to improvise. And we're improvising every second of the gig. The way in which we improvise can change from moment to moment. um, But I, I love giving people the freedom to do that. And so I think that attracted a lot of these these guys in Dallas who were like playing, you know, great gigs, but that were much more structured and much more limited in terms of where you could go exploratively, if that's a word, which is probably not, oh, you know. That's it. That's it. We now just, it is. You just coined it. Um, and so that attracted these guys. So, yeah, they came. Yeah, guys, guys and girls. Uh, your first Grammy uh, was featuring uh, Layla Hathaway. Yes. Uh, it's on a song called Something. Um, and we have a cut of that. And I think this maybe illustrates your point better than us talking about it. So let's play that.
So when you listen back to that, that was Ooh. that was ten years ago. That was uh, twenty fourteen. Yes. Um, what I you... was four. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why you're going to join the juniors tennis tour any day now. Yeah. Uh, what do you What are you hearing when you think about it? Because I see all the emotion. I see painted across your face. Yeah. I mean, Layla Hathaway. You know, um, whose last name you might recognize because she's the daughter of the great soul singer Donnie Hathaway. Um, Layla is one of the greatest singers in the world. And um, not only in her ability to deliver a lyric in the way that we conventionally think about singers as like the primary function is to tell a story through words, but she's an improviser like in the way that the jazz saxophonist Wayne Shorter was an improviser, like John Coltrane was an improviser. I mean, like she inhabits both of those spaces, like the the kind of like singery singer space mm-hmm. and the the natural improviser space with such mastery. It's like it's just yeah, it's she's breathtaking to listen to. There's um, you know, one of the things that I believe that it led to is, and I find so interesting is when you start playing with with folks like this, you know, who have a name and who start and you mm. and you get that first Grammy. I feel like that really opened the door for other people to bring in influences, right? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the nice things about awards. There are a lot of not nice things about awards, but one of the nice things about awards is that um, they can shine light on on certain things that normally aren't in the light, and they can, yeah, they can create change in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Mm. One of the things that came up uh, that, I, that caught my attention so much was that you guys had this idea to come up with something that you call family dinner. Hmm. Um, and just to kind of give folks the outline of it, as I understand it, it was like, it was an event to kind of, to showcase a venue, right? That then you then cut, you did you cut? Tell me about, tell me about the family dinner idea. Yeah, the idea was that we were living in New York, most of the band, we were living in New York and there were just all of these unbelievable artists, especially singers mm-hmm. that we were fans of, but that maybe weren't so well known and, and so we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool, like every Friday night, like 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., <laughs> when everybody gets off their gigs, to do like a totally unrehearsed show that's unique every time we do it, where we invite like three of those singers to come and perform two songs, three songs of theirs with us. They send us the songs in advance. Everybody learns the song, but we do no rehearsal, and we just get on stage and count off the songs and play them. Wow, so it's so much improv involved. Totally, and just a lot of, like, let's see what happens, you know? I mean, um, a lot of embracing the moment. And, uh, and of course, 1 a.m. on a Friday, you know, it's a little... The audience expectations are a little more relaxed. <laughs> and I, bet, I imagine you it's know. a lot of like um, like industry people, folks who oh, are like yeah. in the food and restaurant and beverage yeah. industry. So like family dinner fits as a title too because sure. that's what a lot of people in restaurants do. They have a family dinner. Yeah. So like that that seemed to fit. So that crowd was a willing crowd. It was. I would say it was probably 80% musicians mm. too because, you know, musicians tend to work on the weekends. So like, but at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., you know, you get off your gig. The, the number of people that would walk in with guitars on their backs or whatever was it was really beautiful and so it was really like it was almost just like all these new york musicians hanging out we were there playing but it became yeah very familial um and that led to the idea of making an album out of it where instead of having three singers doing three songs each we have eight singers doing one song each or whatever and then we make that as a a record 
And that's what we did. We did it twice. We did it once in Virginia, Family Dinner Volume 1. The song we just heard with Layla was um, was from that record. And then we did a bigger version of it, a much bigger version of it for Family Dinner Volume 2 in New Orleans during Mardi Gras in 2015 or somewhere around there. Um, or 2016, I can't remember. And uh, and that was incredible. You know, we had David Crosby. We had Jacob Collier, Laura Mvula, Susanna Baca. We had all these wonderful guests from around the world come in. It was awesome well when something like that happens you realize something you've created tell me about that the moment where you start to realize what i'm a part of here what i help create but also what i'm a part of i is something special um yeah i mean i don't it's not i don't really think <laughs> i don't really sit down and think about that no but I in mean, the sense of somebody shows up and you're like oh my god this guy this yeah. guy this woman is, wants to play with us there's to- yeah there was one moment Definitely when we were setting up for Family Dinner Volume 2, and it was in this huge church in New Orleans, and it was like the night before the first rehearsal, so everyone had flown in, and we were setting everything up. And I remember walking from one end of the the the, the room to the other, and as I was walking in, there was like Jacob Collier was showing a couple of musicians something that he was working on on a piano, and then I walked by, and Charlie Hunter, the great guitar player, was showing a few members of my band um uh a couple of the songs that he had written for D'Angelo on Voodoo which is like the most influential black you know record of the last like 30 years and then at the under, uh, other end of the room it was like David Crosby <laughs> like you know showing our guitar players odd tunings you know tuning the guitar in different ways or whatever you know and then there was like Becca Stevens you know one of the one of my favorite songwriters ever and and Laura and Vula who had just flown in who was very shy the two of them were talking and it was like it was almost like a movie scene to like like a like one long shot you know right like right I was just like walking through the room going oh my god this is insane because it was also like seeing kind of music history in the case of David and Charlie um, because of the marks that they've already left on how music is played and then seeing like the future, like seeing Laura and Jacob and Becca, and and it was a it was fan it was so beautiful, yeah, really beautiful. And those those two albums were nominated or or won Grammys. The first one, uh, the song that Layla Hathaway mm-hmm. did with us, something won won a Grammy. That was our first Grammy ever. The second one was not uh, was actually the only record we've made, I think, uh, since 2014 that was not nominated. I believe. That's amazing, yeah. Or one of two, yeah. Yeah, because you guys have five. Uh, we'll go through uh, in 20, 2023, just last year, 21, 17, 16, and 14. Yeah. Like, really, uh, I mean, you guys have, what does that say to you, that time that's such a, 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 really a compressed period of time, mm. you know, where you have this much success and you have this much recognition? It, do you feel like it's just like that the band starts to find its voice? In other words, people start to, you, you start to attract the people that, that are, are you know, getting what you're putting down, so to speak, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's just a basic law of advertising that the more people that you reach, the more people will be, will, will patronize you for Mm. lack of a better term. Right. Like also the more people will hate you. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I I would, but did you find that to be true? No, no. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, if, if 300,000 people know who you are, you know, maybe uh, maybe two hundred thousand like you, a hundred thousand don't. If three million people know who you are, maybe two million people hate you, and a million don't. You know, I mean, it's just that's kind of how 
things work in the world. So, I, I mean, I think most businesses, their model is like, let's try to reach the most people possible. Um, and with the kind of music we play, our means were very limited. We don't have a singer. I mean, you, the, we work with singers sometimes, but Snarky Puppy is a band, is an instrumental band. You know, I, I would love to say we all, you know, are supermodels, but we're definitely not. <laughs> so, like, I mean, how, yeah, how does, like, a, like a you know, 12-piece instrumental weird jazz kind of band reach large amounts of people? Um, and so we tried to do it by, you know, using the tools that the Internet had to offer, you know, like YouTube and Facebook and stuff like that in the beginning to try to to try to. Um, get videos that we were making to move around and we just toured around forever and played in every dirty crappy bar in the US you know um, <laughs> even before like you really before you really like again that first Grammy was like 2014 so you guys were at it 10 years like 10 years before, before like you know it wasn't like an overnight success thing it was very much <laughs> it was very much just <laughs> it's not even a 20 year success <laughs> I mean depending on who you ask I guess in the band, maybe people would say we're still not. But um, the joy is in the doing, though. It sounds like, like in that sense, if you're doing something for ten years yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're touring little places totally. and clubs, the joy is in the doing. It was a blast. It was really um, st- terrible, also. You know what I mean? I mean, it, but really terrible in what way? No, I don't. I don't know. In t- I mean, yeah. I mean, the first ten years of the band, we were driving around in my white van. I mean, various ones because they would all die. But like, yeah, you know, like a white, that typical kind of creepy Chevy white passenger van, you yep. know, with a trailer with our gear in the back and like, yeah, driving around to any bar that would let us play and sometimes making $10 a guy, you know, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes more, <laughs> not much more. I mean, generally like, like that first tour I remember we did in 2004 five or six and um we we came back from the tour i mean it was it was so fun but it was also a mess and our our uh there were two girls in the band a trombone player and a piano player and they both came from like i think one had a business degree and the other one came from like a family of business people or whatever and after the tour like they sat me down and were like this is not a good business plan <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, what do you mean? Driving like nine hours between shows and, and making $7 a person is not a good, not a good plan. It was really funny. Um, but that, that was kind of like the, where things could have gone either way. Like, all right, I guess we've done this enough. Right. What, what kept you going at that point when, when oh, you had that come to Jesus, you know? The first couple of years, you know, it was just so fun. And I didn't know anybody else my age that was doing that. Like, what we were doing was, like, kind of like some 1970s stuff. Like, get in the van and drive around and play until somebody discovers you. You know, right. like, that was the plan because there wasn't, social media wasn't a thing, you know, really. And Solve some mysteries with your with your Great Dane along the way yeah, in, exactly. in the mystery machine, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, so that was, that, just the fun element and the camaraderie element and the familial element kind of was sustained us for some years. And then for me, when things got tougher and tougher and tougher, and also you're getting older and you're seeing people around you actually making money and you're losing money. Then I think the thing that sustained me was just stubbornness, just feeling like I've already lost so much money on this project. I've already invested so much 
time and energy and and like I'm not going to let it die. I'm not going to let it fail, you know? And I would say that stubbornness kind of got me through the next six years. And then after the Grammy, things kind of started to change. It's not like you win a Grammy and then the next day, you know, Rolling Stone is calling you for an interview. It doesn't work like that. Like we were still playing gigs where we were making $70, $80 a person for like a year after that first Grammy, you know, or something. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, because really, I mean, Grammys can change things, but also sometimes they don't. Right. You know? So it's just something that you keep in your van as you keep driving around the country. <laughs> yeah. It holds down your road atlas, your map in those early days. But yeah, anyway, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It was a, it was a long, hard one. And, and everybody in the band sacrificed a lot and went through a lot. And everybody still has the scars and the back pain. But you know, we I think we came out on the other side and now now we can sell tickets and we can survive doing what we do. And that's no small feat. It's beautiful. And I, and I think that everybody in the band really deserves it because they work their butts off the crew. Also, not just the, the people who play in the band, you know. Well, I want to ask you more about that because you you started a, a music festival down here in Miami, Miami Beach um, that you're going to be playing in this weekend. Um, and that's that's one of those signs of success because of, of especially who you have playing and some of the bands that we're going to hear for the first time. Um, our guest today is Michael League. He's the band leader of Snarky Puppy, and he's also the co-founder of the Ground Up Music Festival. The festival is happening this weekend at the Miami Beach Band Show. So you guys get to the point, like you said, where like something begins to change, right? And and you're like you said, you're able to sell tickets at things like the festival this weekend. Sure. So talk to me about like who you try to feature at, at events like that, at events like this one. Yeah, I mean, I started a record label in 2013 called Ground Up Music um, because in that moment, we were in like year nine of Snarky Puppy and we could see that our fan base was starting to grow, especially internationally, and that we thought we might have a future. And, you know, going back to those artists that I was telling you about, the original Family Dinner artists in New York, we had all these friends that we were like, wow, these are great artists and they're not getting the attention that they deserve. So how can we help? And so this record label was created to effectively like shuffle our fan base over to these other artists that we like. Oh, you that's know, so say like, oh, if you like our music, you should check out this music. Um, and to put these artists that we loved in front of people who we whose ears we trusted, you know. Um, and the Ground Up Music Festival is no different in terms of its its reason for being. It's no different from the from the label. The idea is that rather than hiring, you know, inviting all of the same very famous artists who play all the festivals every year to come, what we try to do is invite incredible artists from all around the world that you probably haven't heard of. And maybe a couple that you have, but then we ask them to do something different. You know, like Michael McDonald, the legendary Michael McDonald came a couple of years ago and we asked him to come alone and do like an all acoustic set with members of Snarky Puppy. So I was playing double bass and and we had like, you know, Chris Potter playing saxophone and Michael was playing acoustic piano only the whole night. And we had drums and organ and and uh, and some backing singers. And it was really fun because he had never played with any of those musicians before. And also it wasn't like, you know, he wasn't playing to pre-recorded tracks. It was like all live, really organic. That was maybe the most fun gig that I've ever seen at the festival but then also we have you know like this weekend we have you know Base Kukuyate from Mali like the ma the living master of the Ngoni which is a West African lute 
you know we have uh etienne charles bringing his you know caribbean project we have um elena pinder hughes you know one of the, the great i mean probably the greatest flute player in jazz right now as our artists in residence you know we have so many fantastic artists um from around the world coming and um, and you have these these two bands, right? These two Cuban bands, which really caught our attention. We were talking about uh, Los Muñequitos de Matanzas and Afrocuba de Matanzas, um, and there are these two bands that that are going to be that are kind of like what we read. It kind of like rival bands yeah. a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, I, they're rivals like Federer and Nadal were rivals, or like like Larry Bird and Michael Jordan were rivals. You know, I mean, ultimately they're they're friends. They all live. You know, all of these musicians in these two bands, they live in this one town, Matanzas, which is not a big town in, yep. in Cuba, you know. Um, and both of these bands were formed in the 50s. You know, these are the two most important bands in the history of rumba. And uh, and last year, through my friend Luis Bran, who's like a big ambassador for, for Rumba Matancera, he invited you know he and i kind of cooked up this idea to make a record with these two bands together so it's wow. almost like yeah if you think of it as like federer and adult now federer and adult playing doubles perfect i love that basically you know for the you, first you time really, you really are going deep on the tennis oh, thing man you really That's are all i think about <laughs> but uh, uh so we made this record in matanzas last year it was amazing where did you record in cuba we recorded in matanzas yeah wow. in, in an old movie theater an abandoned movie theater called what, what, Teatro Velasco. What was that like? It was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, it was incredible. It's just, you know, Cuba is a very, very special place, very unique. And and these musicians are just, they're, they're unreal. I mean, it's like they wake up in the morning and it's music until they go to bed, you know, every day of their lives, you know. Um, and so, yeah, we made this record, which is going to come out later this year. And, and, um, so Ground Up Fest will be the first time that they've ever played on stage together together, like in, in 70 years of rumba history. Amazing. The thing that's not amazing is the U.S. government has not let them in the country, even though they had all their papers organized. Wow. So you're still, so it's maybe not sure whether they're going to play this weekend? That's correct. They're, oh. Right now they're in Mexico City. They're in their third day of like processing. Um, and we have called everyone we we know that could possibly help and today we got some good news that maybe there's some help on the way from an unlikely from an unlikely source and so we're like um we're you know we're crossing our fingers and just hoping that uh that this ridiculous u.s policy of of being incredibly prejudiced against you know cubans uh will will somehow like the storm will kind of break and they'll and they'll be able to get in i mean for some of these musicians that are coming that are, and there's some people in their 50s and 60s and 70s they've never left the country this is will be their first time playing internationally it's gonna be so beautiful and also for miami which is like so cuban culturally you right. know like but but this has always been a touchstone i mean this is your 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 you're reaching for the third rail here in South Florida is when you is when you talk about of course bringing Cuban artists, which historically over the years some it's have have not even have not played here because of you know really uh, of some, course in some in some uh, in very valid instances you know some long held uh, sure uh, you know uh, long held uh, painful memories and what have you I think that's I think that's probably something that you're that you're 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 learning firsthand now huh? oh definitely and I I mean I've been aware of the dynamic and I know it's a complicated issue but in this case 
I don't think it's complicated to let legendary Grammy Award winning musicians come into a country to spread unity and community and peace through music. To me, that's not a very complicated situation, especially when, um, you know, when they, when they when everything was arranged in advance. So we'll we'll see what happens. Everybody's got their their fingers crossed. Um, well, let's get some encouragement in the air. Let's let. Why don't we hear some of their music? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, we have uh, El Sinsonte, uh, which is uh, this is El Sinsonte Live, which is by Los Muñequitos de Matanza. This was that was song was El Sinsonte and that was in vivo uh, live uh, by Los Muñequitos de Matanza who apparently are waiting at the U.S. border to decide whether whether they're going to be able to play at the Ground Up Music Festival this weekend. They are. But it's not our first time dealing with these issues. We had an issue with an incredible Mexican artist, Sil- Silvana Estrada, who's mm. like now kind of like the, the, the new like Joni Mitchell for the Latin world, you know? I mean, this wow. incredible young singer-songwriter who's exploded recently. And, and, you know, we had issues, you know, with her too. And Sometimes it, getting in is just hard. <laughs> what's, getting, what strikes me hard. when you think about music breaking down barriers, I think what you think about too is like when you hear from someone who's been in a place that you haven't heard from in a long time, like they might bring a lot to say oh, in the course. sense that they can tell you what their world looks like, of you know, in a way that you, that you might not be exposed to. Like if you say, well, we're not going to listen to this kind of music. We know that music is like... I mean, it's sung poetry in the sense like we are telling truths. So they're sure. they're going to be telling truths about their their experience, I guess. You know. Well, yeah. I mean that that's the fundamental purpose of art. I believe mm-hmm. is to create empathy, to expose people to different ways of looking at the world and um, and and identifying through that and then uh, to identifying with that in an emotional way, which art kind of provides this incredibly clean, open highway you know, to transmit ideas by opening you up emotionally, right. you know? And I mean, yeah, I think, you know, Muñequitos, Afrocuba, these groups, they're like definitely no exception to that. You know, I think it, it's just, it would be so beautiful to see what happens when they play here. I know that if, if we played Los Muñequitos and we didn't play Afrocuba, we were going to have a problem on our That's hands. Right. So, so Afrocuba de Matanza has played live in 1996, and we have a cut of that. And let's, let's hear some of that. And for the first time, we're going to get to hear them, Afrocuba de Matanzas and uh, Los Muñequitos de Matanza on stage. Fingers crossed uh, from from your side, I guess. That's right. That's right. You know, when 
it's interesting to me. I was thinking back on, you know, you started this band as like your for your entryway into into music because you couldn't re- it's not something you really were able to express in college and now I now I I was reading that that you put out a solo album where you play every instrument. So you come up from a guy who didn't pick up an instrument really until <laughs> he was 15 and now you're yeah. you cut an album a couple of years in 2021 where you played yeah. every instrument. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean That's it, a journey, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it was. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I just get a, I, I'm just kind of obsessive. So, you know, I try to, I try to move quickly with whatever it is that I'm doing. And what that, did you, what did you learn from that? From making the solo record? Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, well, I learned that I need to hire a producer next time. That I definitely <laughs> learned. Um, and I think I, I mean, I learned a lot. There's so many things you learn, you know, I mean, also like I'm used to playing bass, which means that I'm used to playing with drummers. So a lot of what I do as a bass player is like the drummer leads and I follow, you know. And when you're playing everything, it's like there's no one to follow. <laughs> <laughs> so the first couple of days of where I was playing percussion, because I don't play drum set, but I played different kinds of percussion from from mostly from Turkey and Morocco. And so it was like I just felt really naked. I was like, wow, man, this is like there's no hiding here. Like and I developed a lot more empathy for drummers in that moment like the responsibility that they have you know but I tried my best to figure it out and uh, and it was a blast it was just it was it was just really fun to just like wake up every day and 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 work on something kind of like just me and my engineer and co-producer Nick Hard who does all the snarky puppy stuff too you know and and then half the session was just me alone and and uh, like all the vocals and stuff and that was really nice it was just cool I'm used to working with like big groups of people and it was cool to just do it chill and alone. I mean, it was the pandemic. Oh, that makes sense. It's a time to do it. Yeah, it was the only time I ever would have done it because as good as I am at like meeting deadlines for other people's stuff, I am like amazing at procrastinating my own stuff. I'm like, that's my biggest talent is <laughs> <laughs> not getting my own stuff done. <laughs> well, well, hearing you say that you felt naked by it, I, we had um, Visitante from uh, Calle oh, yeah. Trece, you know, yeah. the, the other half of Visitante, and he made up talking about making a solo record for the first time and how putting himself out there and putting his voice out there, first time really yeah, doing right. vocals, and for you, you even did the vocals on that track, so how that can be liberating but also terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I've sung a lot on records, but normally as a backing vocalist, like those records with David Crosby mm-hmm. or something, like we did Lighthouse and I'm doing like, 80 90 percent of the backing vocals but david is doing 100 percent of the leads and singing a lead vocal is like really different <laughs> so that was i'm speaking of things i learned i was like oh man i gotta i need to learn how to do this like but that's the spirit of your band is getting people to bring in the musical influences but also do something different than they're used to doing sure yeah and i think also like art doesn't have to be perfect you know it's it's really just someone told me once it's like when you make a record you're just taking a photograph you're taking a photograph of where you are in that moment musically and and that's why it's important to develop that photograph quickly because if you leave it in the in the what do they call it the dark room or whatever you know like mm-hmm. for 3 years then you pull it out and you've changed artistically and you don't want to release that photograph because you've grown well, Michael, I appreciate so much you spending with the hour with us. It was great sure. to getting to know you and to get folks uh, excited about this music festival this weekend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our guest today was Michael League. He's the band leader of Snarky Puppy and the co-founder of the Ground Up Music Festival. The festival's happening this weekend at the Miami Beach Band Show. 
And that's Sundown for Tuesday, January 30th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio and a heck of a drummer, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we talk with the local artist Cher Reagans. She's a new artist in residence with Ulite Arts. Her work focuses on social, on social justice and gun violence. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.